Okay, so um, I, a faith that stays is new for me. It's the first time I've ever given this talk. Yesterday's talk, I,、uh, I do a lot, and this is the first time I've done this one. So if you see me looking at my phone, at my notes, I'm not texting my friends, I'm not on Instagram. I'm just kind of figuring out what I'm going to say next year. So bear with me.、Uh, who was here yesterday? Okay, so some of you were here yesterday. I don't want to、um, repeat too many stories. I just want to make sure I don't give you a repeat、uh, of yesterday. This is a different one. This is called A Faith That Stays. I am a writer and a teacher in California. I live outside of Los Angeles. And、um, I've primarily written for the youth market. I've worked for companies like Disney and Lego and、um, written for the Los Angeles Times. And I have four novels that are for the young adult market, and,、uh, which is like the teenage. Market usually, and right now I'm working on a nonfiction book. It's my first nonfiction book, and that's for everybody. and It's called Outside Voices,、uh, which was the topic of what I talked about yesterday. I've spent the year trying to figure out what's connected because in this society, what connects、uh, isn't necessarily church.、Um, if you ask someone what connects, they'll probably tell you maybe a song lyric that really resonated with them, maybe a film they saw that really seared their soul, maybe a, a documentary or podcast they listened to. Those are the kind of things that people are talking about, and I don't hear people talking a lot about church. I just don't. You know, sometimes I wish they would, and, but, but I really don't. And so people are really connecting to media. So this year, I've spent the year talking to people in the film industry, screenwriters, directors, producers. I've been talking to musicians that have done well in the music charts,、um, all Christians who are working in the secular mainstream market. Just to ask them, like, how are you connecting? You know, why are we not connecting a lot of time as parents? And, and、uh, I'm a parent of three. And、um, why are we not connecting? And why, why, why is your stuff connecting? How have you been able to make inroads as a Christian when,、um, you know, a couple of my books are Christian books and they haven't been able to connect to the outside world, outside the walls of the church? So all year I've been talking to people, you know, actors on London's West End and people in Hollywood. And, and, just, and I've learned a lot. And I started this book project. Hopefully, it'll be out next summer.、Um, I started this book project thinking that、um, I wouldn't learn much. It was just a job. And I was like, okay, that's a good idea. You know, I can write this book. I'll do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll...、Um, but it really changed me and it really changed my faith in a big way. It even changed me as a parent、um, a lot. And I was surprised. It surprised me talking to all these people. And so hopefully, I can share some of that about how we can cultivate a faith that stays. Okay, it's note time here. Let me see.、Um, Yesterday,、um, or Wednesday, when I flew in,、um, I was in Dublin and I did an interview over there, a radio interview. And the person that was interviewing me、um, asked me something, which is、um, a question I usually don't get because it's usually about my writing career. He asked me,、um, What makes you happy? And I had to think about it and it's like, What makes me happy? Okay, that's kind of like an interesting question. And,、uh, you know, I told him, You know what makes me happy these days? Before it would have been maybe a new publishing contract, or I get this new idea, or something like that happens, or、uh, you know, I make this connection with somebody you know, in the publishing field, or, or something creative happens that's really cool in my life. But nowadays,、um, what makes me happy is when my kids are happy, and I have three kids. Seriously, that makes me happy. When,、um, when my daughter likes this guy a lot, and he's a good guy, he's a guy at church, and, and you know what? She finds out that, that he likes her back. That makes me happy. And、uh, when my kids are excited about something, my, my son's in university, and when he gets, a, he's, he gets to work at a, a video game conference in another state in Seattle,、um, coming up in a couple weeks, and he was, I just talked to him on the phone, and he's so excited about that. It's like, wow, this is a big video game conference because that's what he wants to do. He's a computer science major, and he, he was so excited. And, you know, I, I put down the 
phone and I was so happy because he was happy. And when they're heartbroken, I'm heartbroken and I can't be happy. When there's something going on with my kids, I just can't be happy. It's just impossible. And that's what makes me happy lately. And you know the thing that makes my kids the most happy? Um, and I know it's going to make them most happy if they have a relationship with Jesus because life is so brutally hard. It is, you know. Um, when they're little, they have no clue, and we love on them, and we care for them, and they're running around playing, and we wish as parents that that would last forever, but you know it's not going to last forever, and you know what's right around the corner. You know, right around the corner, there's so many things in life that can, that can hit them like a bus, and, uh, and I know the only way my kids are going to make it if they have a relationship with Jesus. And so this, this talk today um, comes from the heart of a parent, and a writer, and an artist, um, uh, wanting to make sure that we, we cultivate in our churches, in our homes, a faith that stays, that they can walk through life with God. Because you know what? I'm going to be happy. Even if my kids move to the far ends of the earth, you know, I'm going to be happy sitting at home alone, knowing that they're safe and that they're good because they're, they're in the hands of an almighty God that's going to take care of them. So that's my heart today as I come to you. And, and um, by the way, I'm just a writer and a dad. Um, I don't have all the answers at all. I don't. I just want to maybe make you think about some stuff. And I don't want you to feel here like, like you need to change something or that you feel like, oh no, I'm doing it all wrong. I've been messing up. Because you know what? It's hard enough being a parent. It's hard enough being a pastor. It's hard enough being an artist without me adding to the load. So I don't want to add to the load today. So if I, you say, if I say something that like, oh no, I'm not doing that, just don't worry about it. It's like, you know your kids, you know your church members, you know your art, and you know what you're working on, and you know best, not me, okay? Because I'm just, I'm just a guy standing up here talking. So, okay, so here we go. Uh, my phone keeps freezing here. Uh, so statistics are showing right now that two out of three kids in the U.S. Um, are leaving the faith after the age of 15. And those are kids that are brought up in a Christian home. And that's an alarming statistic. And so something's wrong, right? So um, we need to do something about that, and that's what I want to talk about today. And my, uh, a while back, I was at church, and I, I love my church. I absolutely do. It's great pastor, well-meaning people and everything. And uh, so don't take this in the wrong way, but um, they were having a heart for the youth of the city. And... Uh, Rightfully so. And they really did have a heart for the youth of the city. And so they came up with this plan. And the plan was, as that church, that we're going to have this multi-million dollar building that they're going to build for the youth. And uh, they were excited about it. It's like, we're going to raise millions. We're going to build this multi-million dollar building. Because things are really expensive. The property value alone in California is huge. So it, that, you know, that's, it was an understandable thing. And we're going to do this, we're going to have these rooms, and they had a whole church service based on the building. And afterwards, um, my son, who was a teenager back then, he was in high school, and uh, we were walking out, and my son goes, um, you know what, Dad? Um, kids don't really care about buildings. They really don't, you know? And so, um, you know, inside they were really excited about this multi-million dollar project, and my son's all, it's not really what, what, what I care about, you know? And that hit me. And it hit me in a good way, kind of, because guess what? It's good news. You don't mean, need millions of dollars to connect. You don't need millions of dollars to connect with the youth. You can, be, uh, you can be a single mom just struggling to get by. And you know what? God can use you to cultivate a faith that stays. Uh, you can be a pastor with a church of seven people, and you can cultivate a faith that stays. You, know? you can be at the end of maybe your ministry career and you don't even have that much energy and God can use you at the end of your career because you don't need all this sparkly, shiny stuff because that's not what this generation wants. 
Um, in fact, it's kind of the opposite, as you'll find out today. So that's what I want to talk about, cultivating a faith that stays. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is the art of hanging out. You know, I had a hard time. Uh, this is an important skill. Step number one, if you want to cultivate a faith that stays, you need to learn the art of hanging out. I don't know if you have that term here. Do you guys have that term in Northern Ireland? It's just like hanging out together. And we need to, to learn that. I am from an immigrant family. We're from Argentina. My brother and sisters were born in Argentina. I was born in California, though. I was a first-generation American. And uh, my parents didn't really know the rules of the culture. There's a lot of rules to the culture, and I had no clue. I started school. I didn't know what was going on. I knew how to play soccer because we're from Argentina. But in school, we played American football. And I remember just sitting there having no clue what, what was going on at, at our gym class, at our PE class at school. And I had a really hard time. I was really shy. I was an introvert because I was an artist. I loved to write even when I was a kid. And I was an introvert in, an, in a world. America is a world of extroverts. And uh, I just did not fit in. And uh, there was a bit of racism going on. My mom uh, didn't speak English very well, and my dad, my dad did a little bit better, and, and uh, so my mom would come to parent conferences and with the teacher and everything, and I had this one teacher, she was kind of old school, most people treated me great, by the way, and they, they were welcoming, loving, um, that was my experience throughout most of my life, but there was one teacher especially, and uh, she gave me a hard time all year, and I was a shy kid, and I was a really good kid, um, never caused problems, and uh, she was my fourth grade teacher, must have been around 10 years old. And uh, she made it a point to let me know that you are different and you do not belong here. And uh, she was, um, I remember one instance in particular, uh, I used to, we would play it during our break time, we'd play with cars in the dirt and I would get my fingernails dirty. And one day um, she found my fingernails somehow and uh, she made me clean my fingernails and put the dirt under a microscope slide. And it was just me, it wasn't anybody else. And she put the microscope slide, in, and there was a table and a microscope right in front of the class. And she had the whole class line up while I was crying at my desk. <laughs> and she had them come up and line up, and after every kid came up, she told them, told them how filthy I was. And you know that, look how disgusting, look how disgusting that is. And uh, I was so embarrassed, I didn't even tell my, my parents when I came home. And uh, I didn't tell them until I was older. And uh, I was devastated, and that teacher uh, took the life out of me, and I was, I was beat down for years and years uh, after being in that class, and um, there was one day in particular I was really, really sad about something, and I was just in my room, uh, devastated, and I was just lying on my bed, and I remember my mom, biggest spiritual influence in my life by far. My mom came in, and she sat at the edge of my bed, and uh, so uh, she sat at the edge of my bed, and she didn't say anything, and uh, she just put her, her arm, on, she rubbed my arm, and uh, after a while I noticed um, just tears falling. And that's all she did, and after a while she just left. And I remember that, and that's one of the biggest spiritual impacts I had in my life. My mom didn't talk a lot about God at all. She hardly ever preached. And she hardly talked about Jesus, but she loved Jesus. And see, my mom knew the art of hanging out, and that connected with my soul. And uh, it's a crucial, crucial skill to learn as a parent, as a pastor, you know, as an artist, the art of just getting to know a person. And uh, you know what my mom did do is I would see her, I would walk by her room, and I would hear her praying, and uh, 
I'm sorry, my mom, my mom passed away, so every time I talk about her, I, I tear up, but I would hear her crying passionately to God in Spanish, and she'd be praying, you know, you know, Father Dios, Father, and she'd be crying out for her kids, and she'd be praying for all of us, and I'd always see her Bible by her, she had a well-worn Bible, you know, by her bed, and she would read her Bible, and so I knew she didn't have to preach to me at all. So, you know what I did? Um, since my mom had learned the... Uh, art of hanging out. When I was a teenager, things were still difficult for me. <laughs> I, there was a wall out in our house, and the wall overlooked the city. The whole city lights was beautiful. I loved the house I grew up in. And I started climbing up on this old brick wall and looking down at the city. And if you went down to the edge of our street, you can even see Disneyland, and there's fireworks every night at exactly 9.35, and it was a beautiful view. And I would climb up there, and I didn't have a lot of friends growing up in high school even. And, uh, and it was partly because of my experience in elementary school, for sure. But I, uh, I started climbing up there, and I talked to the only person I had to talk to, and I knew who to talk to because my mom was doing it, and it was God. And I started talking to God every single night. I would go up there, and I remember being surprised. I was about 15. I was surprised that I could talk to God that way. And it was like, hey, God, you know, I had a rough day at school. It's like, what? And I, I was talking to him, and you know what? I never heard God's voice audibly, but that still small voice in my heart started telling me something, started telling me, you know what, um, don't listen to the world. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, I made you shy and introverted for a purpose. There's going to be great things going on in your life. Um, and there has been. I can't, believe, um, I can't believe I've been able to, you know, travel the world and do great things. And God knew it back then. And he was telling me and he was whispering things. And, uh, and he healed me. He healed my self-esteem. He built me from the ground up. And you know what, it all came out because my mom learned the art of hanging out, of just being silent and listening. It's not about all our words. It's not about a million words and a million sermons. It's about love and about hanging out. And uh, so, um, hold on a second. James 1.19 is what my mom knew. It says, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. Everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. In order to cultivate a faith that stays, we have to learn the art of hanging out. And I've had to practice that skill um, as a parent. And uh, my, my son, who is an introvert as well, and I totally get it, he's an artist too. And when he was in middle school, so he was around 13, he would go to youth group. I never forced him to go to youth group, but he would go because he loved God, and he knew that's what you do. You go to church, you go to youth group. And I come from a really big church, thousands and thousands of people, which means a really, really big youth group. And he would go, and he would sit in the back row, and then he would come home, and he wouldn't talk to anybody. And we'd go, he'd sit in the back row, and sometimes they'd have like some of the leaders would go sit next to him or talk to him. It kind of makes things worse because, you know, then it's like a big arrow, like, here, you need help, you know? So, uh, and he was uh, sad, and I understood it because I'd been through that. And um, when he would come home upset, I would kind of want to lecture. And I'd want to say, like, hey, but what about this? And I have an awesome wife, and my wife kind of just grabs my hand. And when she grabs my hand, she's basically telling me, be quiet. <laughs> just be quiet. Just let him talk. Um, and my wife just reminds me of that art of hanging out as well. And if you're an artist, you know, the best art comes from the skill of the art of hanging out. And uh, I want to show you about an artist, if I can get this. Since I've been talking to artists this year, I've been trying to diversify. And one of the artists I talked to, his name is Christopher Sladoff, and he's a uh, 
a world-renowned sculptor artist, and he makes life-size sculptures and beyond life-size. He does a lot of work for the Catholic Church, and he does a lot of work for universities around the world, and he does a lot of work for film. And that's one of his sculptures right there. And I was at his studio talking, and his most famous work is a work, uh, a sculpture he did of the author Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury um, is an iconic American writer, and he passed away now. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, which is the biggest prize you can win in literature. And uh, he was commissioned to do a statue of Ray Bradbury. And uh, Chris Lattice was talking about, to Ray Bradbury about this, and Ray Bradbury told him, you know what? Um, rather than just do a statue of me, we can do a lot better than that. And so Chris, Chris and uh, Ray Bradbury began hanging out. And they began talking to each other. And they became dear, dear friends. And at the end of uh, Ray Bradbury's life, he got really sick and he was bedridden. Um, Chris Sladoff, who is a Christian, he's a strong believer, and I've known him since I was a little kid. Um, he was married to my, to my cousin. And uh, he would uh, start reading to him at his bedside. And he read books to him when Ray Bradbury could lo no longer read because Ray Bradbury was an author. He loved books. And Chris knew that because he had gotten to know him. And they just hung out. And Chris wasn't preaching about the gospel and saying things. He was just reading to him. And the very last story he read before Ray Bradbury uh, died was one of Ray Bradbury's own stories. It was The Illustrated Man, which is one of his famous stories. And he read The Illustrated Man. That was the last story that he read. And when, when Ray Bradbury passed away, Chris made the statue. He made the sculpture. Actually, it was before he passed away. He started work on it. And he, he titled um, the sculpture The Illustrated Man. And the, the sculpture was born from the art of hanging out because Chris, rather than finishing the sculpture in six months, he took seven years because he got to know the man. And the this, this statue is critically acclaimed, and they made it even a documentary about it called The Father Electrico, about the process. And because he got to know the man, um, rather than just making the sculpture, and he learned the art of hanging out. And you know the statue isn't of Ray Bradbury, which is really cool. The statue is something that he learned from hanging out. He learned from Ray Bradbury. An important story in Ray Bradbury's life was one day Ray Bradbury was at the circus, and he was 13 years old. And he had gone to two circuses that day. His dad had taken him to one in the morning and one at night. And they were so, he was so tired after the last circus that he was falling asleep. And his dad picked him up as a 13-year-old and walked him the two miles home and carried a 13-year-old. And Ray Bradbury said, that was the last time my father ever carried me. And it made me think, because as, as a dad, you know, there was a last time I carried my son. There was a last time I carried my daughters. I have two daughters. There was a last time. You know, you carry them when they're babies, and there's a last time they get too heavy, they get too big. And that was the last time Ray Bradbury's father ever carried him, ever carried him. So Chris made a statue of Ray Bradbury's father carrying the son as a 13-year-old. And uh, it's a beautiful statue. And um, because Chris made beautiful art because he learned the art of hanging out. And that's, that's a key if you're an artist. You've got to learn your subject. Charles Dickens in London, you just walk the streets and take notes of all the people he saw. And he's a brilliant author because of that, because he knew the people. He knew the characters that he was working with. And uh, let me catch up here on my notes. Hold on a second, sorry. And it was worth it. So you can cultivate a faith that stays. You can't cultivate a faith that stays in your kids or in the parishioners in your church if you don't know their names. 
How can we speak into someone's life if we don't know their names? How can we lecture our kids if we don't really know what's going on? If we haven't really sat for hours and hours on end, understanding what they like, understanding um, the crushes they have. I had the opportunity this last year of driving to work with my daughter every single day, and it takes an hour to take her to school in California traffic. It takes me an hour to go 14 miles. So every single day, an hour or more. When it gets really bad, it's been over two hours. But it, the awesome thing, it's been a blessing because my daughter started telling me everything after school. And it was a wonderful thing, that forced hanging out. We were forced to hang out. I wouldn't choose to sit in traffic. But it was brilliant because I got to learn who she was. And uh, people want to be known. And how do you figure out, how do you do that then? Let's get practical. How do you figure out, um, how do you get to know people? Um, Bob Goff is one of my favorite, he's my favorite Christian author. And he just wrote a book called uh, Everybody Always. And I was just reading it on this trip. And he, he tells the story of he wanted to get closer to his son, was older, and he wanted to get to know his son better. Because, you know, there's kind of more of a disconnect as you get older. And he wanted to, to be involved. And his son loved skydiving. And his son would go skydiving all the time, jumping out of airplanes. So Bob Goff said, you know, if I'm going to connect with him, I'm going to learn how to skydive. So he secretly learned how to skydive. And uh, for the months... Like a couple months, he did dives on his own, and it was scary, but he learned how to, as a, as a dad, and he's probably in his 60s, and he learned how to skydive. And then one day, he drove, because he would drive his son and watch his son jump out of airplanes, but this time he drove, and he got in the plane with his son. And his son was shocked, like, Dad, what are you doing? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, I'm going with you. And uh, see, Bob Goff had learned the art of hanging out. And if you want to get to know someone, you get to know what they love, even if they're the shyest person on the earth. If you know what they love, they'll talk about it. And uh, Bob Goff learned the art of hanging out, and that's going to help us have a faith that stays. Okay, chapter two. I call it respect. Okay, and respect is key. Um, there's this, uh, I'm a teacher as well, and I teach a lot of uh, Muslim and Hindu students, you know, um, in California. It's uh, actually, I, I teach at a wealthy, so I teach writing and, lang and literature, and it's a, kind of a wealthy school, and there's a lot of uh, people from India and people from um, uh, Muslim students as well. And one of the, um, the Hindu holidays is called Diwali. I think it's called Diwali. And uh, sometimes if a student will be celebrating Diwali, it's called the Festival of Lights, they'll be really excited. And they'll be excited about the family time they've had because they were celebrating with their family, and it was an exciting time, and, and they're sharing with it. They're sharing about it. And it's about relationships and love. And yeah, it's interwoven with some theological problems, obviously, because it's the Hindu faith. It's not the Christian faith. And so there's, I have some theological issues about what they're actually celebrating. And, uh, but guess what? When a student will come up to me and talk to me about the great time they had the night before, I don't tell them, well, you know, um, you know, when you believe in a polytheistic religion, and there's quite a lot of gods, and there's a problem, I don't mention that at all. I go, oh, really? Cool. Tell me about it. Tell me about the time you had with your family. And, uh, you know, tell me about this. That, that sounds like really fun. And the reason I do that is uh, because I respect them. I don't respect the holiday or the actual meaning of the holiday. I respect them as people. You know, and I think we're called to respect. Yet sometimes in our families and in our churches, we tread over people's viewpoints that are contrary to ours, even our kids' viewpoints. We tread like with this spiritual lawnmower that just lawn mows everything about it. And uh, 
If we want to cultivate a faith that stays, we have to kind of be careful, and we have to show respect, and we have to tread lightly on people's gardens, because uh, people are fragile. You know, they're not as strong as they look on the outside. And uh, because we might do more damage than good. Um, now, I'm not a pastor, so theologically, I might mess this verse totally up, but let me read a verse to you that spoke to me once, and it's Matthew 13, uh, 24 to 30. And Jesus is talking about this. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, less than gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now, Jesus commands us not to pull out the weeds because if we try to be weed pullers, sometimes we destroy the wheat. And um, there's another meaning to that, and I know there's another scriptural meaning to that, but I was thinking of that verse, and I was thinking that uh, we don't need to correct everyone. We don't need to correct all the weeds that are out there. We don't need to go around talking about, well, you know, that lifestyle is wrong. And, you know, that's wrong, too. And, you know, you believe that? No, no, that's wrong. We don't need to correct every single belief every time. There are times for correction as parents, definitely. There are times for correction as pastors, because Jesus corrected. So I'm not saying there's not times for it. But we kind of have to tread lightly on people's gardens. We are not called to be weed pullers. We're not called to pull out every wrong in people's life. We're called to love. Because to cultivate a faith that stays, we have to cultivate a culture of respect. And respect for a person doesn't mean acceptance of their views. Sometimes we feel like, yeah, but if I respect them and I become friends with them, then you know, you know that their values are so you know, messed up. It's like respecting someone doesn't mean conforming to their views or agreeing with their views. So how do you show respect? Because it's um, to some people, you may th think that sounds counterproductive. Like, isn't that counterproductive? Well, um, let me tell you about my first job. It was with Disney, my first writing job ever. When I, I went to, uh, after university, I was in my 20s, and I really wanted to do something creative with my life. And I was really naive, and I didn't know anything about the publishing business at all. I didn't know anything about it. So I decided, um, you know, I'll write my favorite company in the world, and it's Disney. And their headquarters are in Burbank, which is not too far from my house. Um, so I decided, Walt Disney Studios is there, and I decided, like, I'll just write them a letter. So I wrote them this letter and basically said, hey, I'd love to write, and uh, can I write for you? And it was really naive, and there's more to it than that. And I don't remember exactly what I wrote. There was more to it, but uh, that's the ba basic gist of it. And uh, it was silly. And Disney could have thought that... How naive. I need to school this, this young man on the ways to write because that's ridiculous. He thinks he's just going to write some random letter and we're going to give him a job. But you know what? Disney didn't do that. They could have mocked my immaturity and it's almost embarrassing to think about it, really, when I think about it. And they could have mocked my immaturity, but instead, someone respected me and they saw what I could become based on something in the letter rather than who I was at the moment. And I got a call two weeks later, and it was from someone in Disney, and it kind of almost made me pass out when I got the call. I was like, what? And it's like, uh, and they told me, hey, we have a job for you. And it's a freelance work, and it had to do with the film Beauty and the Beast. And they said, so, you know, it's a freelance job, and are you willing to take it? And, it, you know, it pays this much money. And um, 
I was like, yeah. It's like, and so um, I kind of hung up the phone, didn't get the details uh, really, and they were trying to call me back, but I was too busy calling all my friends. I got a job with Disney. I got a job with Disney. So the phone was busy for a long time, and that's how I got my first writing job. And uh, you know, I have. Um, I have a Mickey Mouse on my desk always. It's a little old antique Mickey Mouse. And I will always be loyal to Disney. Um, you know why? That loyalty will stay because they respected me. And they saw that this kid, you know, he has some heart. You know, I'm going to give him a chance. You know, and that's, that's what respect looks like. You know, when we respect people, we don't point out their flaws. Like that letter, it's not written well. You know, you don't do that. You know, it's we we see what people are, we see their dreams, and we respect their dreams. And we go like, really? You have a dream to do that? Sure, come along, let's, let's go, let's figure out how to do this. And that's what Disney uh, did, and it, it really cultivated you know, my faith in that company, because they, they, they respected a naive kid. And people are going to be loyal, our own kids are going to be loyal when we respect them. And so again, let's see what people, not what they are, but what they can become. So how do we respect people in church? How do we respect people in our own homes? Let me see the time here. We respect them by giving them a voice. Um, in our church, in our youth groups, in our homes, there should be places of open discussion. And oftentimes, they're not. And I think when we have an open discussion, it gets more messy, and it gets a little bit more complicated, and you have people saying things that we might not agree with that are theologically incorrect and are problems. But guess what? Um, when we have respect, respect goes a long way. And we need to respect people's voices, and we need to give them a voice. And we need to cultivate a place where participants aren't afraid to share their opinions and their values and their beliefs and their dreams. We need to be a place where they dream out loud and they're not scared to dream out loud. Our own kids need to be able to dream out loud their silliest dreams and have the audacity to do that in church even. And uh, if we always pipe in with a lecture, however kind and well-meaning, they're not going to come for us for help next time because who wants a lecture, right? And again... I told you before about my wife. My wife is brilliant because I love to lecture. It's like I talk and I teach and that's what I do. And my wife, again, just will always grab my hand and give me a look and, it tell, and that look is to, to tell me to be quiet and just let them talk. I spoke, another person I spoke to last year is Valentina Garza and she's a producer and a screenwriter. Um, started um, writing for The Simpsons animated series and they actually got promoted to a producer of The Simpsons and now she works for a show called Jane the Virgin and she produced, she, she's a consulting producer and a writer for that show as well and she's a Christian in a very rough world and with sometimes shows that are inappropriate and stuff and, and she's had to navigate that but she's this real strong woman and she's a really wise, wise woman and uh, I was talking to her probably like a month ago maybe and uh, we were talking and she was telling me um, she was talking about her kids, because she has kids, middle grade kids, um, I think like a 13-year-old daughter. And they were in the car, and uh, the Ed Sheeran song came in, The Shape of You. And uh, she could have talked a lot about the bad parts of that song, you know, The Shape of You, I'm in love with your body, and there's things in that song that she could have been, you know, taken offense to, and, but she, just, she basically said, you know, when that song came on, and I just asked my daughter, hey, what do you think about that, The Shape of You? Do you think someone can be in love with the shape of someone? And she just started asking her daughter questions. And that was all, you know, and just seeing what her daughter thought about the song. And I thought that was an interesting take as a parent because, uh, you know, passive listeners forget. They do. You just forget. You go to church, you hear something, and you drive off from church, and it's gone. You know, passive listeners, you know, if you're, there's teachers out there, you know that as well. When people are participating in the actual learning that's going on, um, 
it's like exercising a muscle. If we're just constantly moving the muscle for them, if I get my kids and tell them they need to exercise and I'm moving their arm up and down, they're not going to... They're not going to learn. They're not going to grow. Their muscle and their brain or that theological, spiritual muscle isn't going to grow because we're just doing it for them. And then a lot of parents are surprised when their kids go to university and oh, everything was so fine. And now they just, whoa, what happened at university? They just went wild. You know, It's because maybe that faith we were giving them, we were just exercising them. We were moving their arms up and down and we were telling them what to say and what to do. And because they wanted to please us, not God, they, they went along with the program. But now when we're not around, it's gone. You know, because active listeners, active participants, those are the people that take ownership of their faith. So what Valentina Garza was doing, although some would disagree, it was she was causing her daughter to think about things and to think about life and to think about faith. So, um, you know, uh, sometimes I'll hear teachers complaining about everyone in my class is failing. Or sometimes you're here like a youth worker, like no one's worshiping, no one's excited. Well, maybe there's a reason. Maybe it's because all, it's been all you. you know? It's been all you doing everything. And it hasn't been them you know, building that muscle up. You know, the muscle that is, that is praising God, surrendering to God, worshiping, all those things you know, that we want our kids to do so badly. Um, maybe sometimes our sermons and Sunday school lessons and our dinner time talks should basically be, what did you think about that? like Valentina Garza, you know, maybe a church group, a youth group could be like, well, what do you guys think about this? You know, there's this abortion issue going on, you know, what do you, with, with older kids, obviously, but, you know, what do you think about that? You know, what's going on in the news right now? You know, and, and just let people talk. It's messy, you know, it's disorganized, it's wild, but it's wonderful because people are engaging and it's a safe place to engage and they'll come They'll come to us as parents, they'll come to church uh, knowing that it's a safe place to dream out loud, to doubt out loud, you know, and, and I think that's a really healthy thing. Messy, but healthy. And, uh, and it may take longer, but if you give your kids respect, or anyone respect, I'm not just talking about kids, um, they'll respect us back, and they'll do the right thing, not because they want to please us, or not because they think it's the right thing. They'll do the right thing because it's the right thing, and they'll, they'll have it in their heart, you know, and they won't do it because they fear punishment. They'll do it because they love God, and they love us, and that'll be awesome. So, I talked, about, I talked about yesterday a little bit about authenticity, and I won't repeat uh, completely, but I talked about my daughter who had uh, written these notes all over the garden. And uh, I won't tell you the story again. So, but uh, if uh, my daughter, who was at that time six when she wrote these notes, um, she was in high school. She was probably around, I would say, 16 years old. And I noticed something going on with her. My daughter wasn't uh, out sinning. She wasn't out doing all these bad stuff at all. Not at all. She hadn't fallen away from God. But I noticed she was getting, getting quiet um, about spiritual things. And I could tell something was going on. And she had made a couple of comments like, after church and stuff. And I knew something spiritually was going on. But I couldn't quite pinpoint what was going on. But um, I think she was, as everybody does at a certain age, she was trying to think about faith, and she was starting to think about spiritual things, and she was wondering about her own faith and thinking, you know, is this my faith or is this my parents' faith? And is this whole Jesus thing enough to support the weight of the world? Because, you know, life's getting kind of tough here. You know, I'm 16 years old. 
life's getting kind of tough, and is this enough? Is God really enough? You know, everybody thinks that, and it's important to think those questions. It really is, you know, it's important to really to make that decision. And she was wondering about her faith, and she was doing it respectfully, and it was, it was not a problem at all. She wasn't going off the deep end whatsoever. It was a healthy thing. But I could tell. And this, this uh, it's gone on for a while, probably like a year. And uh, this old pastor from Texas came to our California church. He was a visiting pastor. And he came up, and uh, he talked about just earlier, really recently, like a year before, he had been a Christian all his life, and he had been a pastor for decades. And he said his, he was really, really close to his mother. And his mother, his wife and him, were planning this special trip for his mother. They were going to go to Niagara Falls in New York, and it's going to be a great trip. And he was, he was really close to his mother. His mother was a spiritual mentor, and his mother passed away suddenly. And they couldn't even go on that trip because uh, she passed away right before the trip, and he was devastated. And um, he had the audacity to say this. You know, when my mother died, I started to wonder if heaven even existed because I started really thinking about it and wondering, am I ever going to see my mom again? And he started to doubt, and he started to think, maybe I won't. And this is a pastor that had, I think he was a Baptist pastor that for decades had preached in the church, and suddenly he had these doubts, and the doubts terrified him. Because, whoa, I've been a pastor, now I'm doubting heaven. Oh my gosh, what do I do? And so he decided to be authentic with his church, and he went up one morning, he was going to preach a sermon, and he told them, guys, I need prayer, I'm having a hard time with things. I'm starting to wonder if heaven even exists, and I'm really struggling with this. And you know what the church did? They didn't fire him. They didn't kick him to the curb. They embraced him. And for the next year, they walked alongside him. And they were with him. And he had the audacity to doubt out loud. And they respected that. And he thought about a lot of things theologically. He studied. And he came back to the point like, yes, I'm going to see my mom again. There is a heaven. There is a heaven. There is a Jesus. And his faith is stronger than ever. So he shared that with us at church. He talked about his doubts. And my daughter, you would think that, a, that this... I don't know how old this pastor, this gray-haired pastor, wouldn't connect. Because you think, oh, no, you have to have this cool youth pastor that's all hip and cool music to connect. No, no, this guy connected. You know, my daughter already had the cool youth pastor and everything. It was great. She already had the, the, you know, the worship music, you know, and she had all that. But those things weren't connecting. This guy connected, you know, and you know why? Because he had the audacity to doubt out loud. He was authentic about his fears, about his, about his faith, about his hope, and even about his doubt. And that connected. And that afternoon, after church, um, my daughter said, that was really good. She turned to me, and she went to the bookstore on her own, because she drives, and she went to the bookstore, and she bought the Message Bible on her own. And she had a Bible. She had another Bible, but she bought the Message Bible. And uh, she posted on Instagram, which kind of surprised me. She posted her Bible, and the Bible was open, and she said something, I forget what it was, like, it's time for me to get back into this. And uh, uh, so... Uh, um, I'm so sorry. Uh, so, and she, um, and she was telling the world, and she was telling all her friends. It's like you know, this I'm following Jesus. And then that was the day she made faith her own. And I'm, I'm probably emotional about this because when I come back, I come back on Monday. I'm going to be um, flying her up to college in Seattle, and she's leaving us. And uh, but she's going to a Christian school that she decided on because she wants to learn about the Bible. And she's hearing podcasts from the pastor at that university, and she's showing, Dad, you've got to hear this po- podcast. And, you know, even though she'll be a 1,000 miles away, you know, I'm totally okay with it. I'm totally, it's going to break my heart. It's going to break my heart in a good way because she's developed the faith that stayed because this, this old guy came to our church, and he had the audacity to be authentic and to be real. And that really, really connects. And it seems counterproductive, like, no, you don't share your doubts. 
No, 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 no. That'll make people, you know, go away from the Lord, you know, and, and that's not a good thing. But uh, it's actually the opposite. See, we live in a culture where people are sold things from the day they are children. They are sold things like, you know, do this, be that, you know, you need to look a certain way. And, and they're sold things and kids can, they're really smart. And I'm not just talking kids generally, you know, people in their 20-somethings, people beyond university can spot a fake in a second. And if we're f fake and we say like, you know, you follow Jesus, everything's great. Everything's going to work out. And, you know, and, oh, people got sick, and, oh, that's because of this. And, you know, and God, if you have an answer for everything, you know what, you're not really, the Bible says we see through a glass darkly, you know, but then we'll see face to face. You know, so as parents and everything, we need to be authentic and not have all the answers, but point to the ones who does. You know, because Jesus has all the answers. And I, I said yesterday, as parents and as pastors and everything, there's a great line to learn, and the line is, I don't know. You know, I don't know why this happened. I don't know. I have no clue. You know, I don't know why, you know, this ministry that you built and you had this vision and God was leading you and it fell apart and it collapsed. I don't know. I have no idea. But then one day face to face, you're going to get your answer and you're going to know. And it might not be in this life. I wish everything, you know, in this life we could figure it out. A lot of times we do figure things out later. Like, I, oh, I understand why that happened. But sometimes we don't. So we need to be real and authentic because we want to cultivate a faith that stays that, that's the thing that actually works. So, um, let me see where I'm at here. We don't want to sound like Christian spam or Christian junk mail. You know, we want to be real. So, my mom, I remember telling my mom uh, once, and I told I was having some doubts too around Izzy's age, and I was like, oh, and it scared me because I'd never had doubts before. And um, I told my mom, and my mom thought, well, you know what? Um, doubts are like birds flying around your head. They'll always be there. Just don't let them make a nest in your head. And she had heard that from her pastor, and she told me, and that's it. It wasn't a big deal. It was like, oh my gosh, you're doubting? What? No, you can't do that. No, she basically just kind of, oh, don't worry about it. You know, that, that happens sometimes. And uh, it was a great way to put it. I love my mom. Uh, and uh, she didn't talk a lot, but that, that was one of the things she said. So let me see what time it is. Oh, great, we have some time. Another thing we need to do is we need to cultivate hope if we want to cultivate a faith that stays. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is when Jesus is entering Jerusalem. It's uh, a really short, ver short verse. He, he's over, looking over the city, and it says, Jesus wept. A really short verse. Jesus wept over the city. And he was weeping over people's uh, broken homes, broken lives, broken marriages. He was uh, weeping for the lonely kid that didn't have any friends. He was weeping for the people you know, that were afraid, the people who were sick. And he was weeping, you know, for all of us, really, when he wept over Jerusalem. And I love that verse. And I think um, we should, I think he would weep over us now as a culture. And I think we need to weep over our kids. We need to weep over the church. We need to weep over the people we ministered to. Because do you remember the young adult years? It's such a crucial time. You know, when we're in our 20s and when we're in our, when our teens, you don't know who you're going to marry. You don't know if you'll be married at all. You don't know if you're going to end up alone. You don't know what job you're going to have. You know you're going to have to move out of your parents' house eventually, but you don't know where you're going to live. It's a terrifying time, and crucial, critical decisions are, are being made at the time. You don't know what job you're going to have. And uh, you know what? Jesus understands that, and he weeps over us and, in understanding. And uh, I uh, just lost my place. Hold on. Sorry. This is new, guys. It's all new to me here. Okay. So... Um, you know, there's a lot of things spiritually we're thinking about, too. And in order to cultivate a faith that stays, we need to be burden lifters. We need to lift that burden that people have. 
Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, uh, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is a burden lifter. He comes alongside us, and he carries the load. And people leave the faith when faith becomes a burden, when it becomes heavy, a heavy load that adds to the already hard load of life. And when faith becomes a load, then we leave faith. And uh, the Pharisees did that really well. The Pharisees would add on all these things, and they would make faith a heavy thing. When Jesus comes alongside us and he helps lift the load. I was talking to, another person I talked to this year was um, William Paul Young, and he wrote a book called The Shack, and there's a movie of The Shack. I don't know if you had that book over here. It was a, it was a bestseller in the U.S. And I was talking to him, and I was asking him that question. Why do you think kids leave the faith? Or why do you think people, not just kids, why do you think people are leaving the faith? And he was talking about, well, you know, when kids are little, their parents just love them at home, and they just love their kids, and they tell them, you're awesome, and you're such a great kid, and you're a beautiful kid. You're made in God's image. You're a great kid. But then sometimes they'll go to youth group at church, and they'll be told, you're a sinner, and you better stay away from this, and you better do this, and you better be that, and you better volunteer more, and you better be less selfish, and you better be this. And that's after them being at school here in a lecture all day, and they're tired. And then they go to church, and they're lectured again. Not all churches do that, by the way. There's, there's great pastors out there that don't do that. But um, sometimes in our youth groups, that's what happens. And so he was saying that, you know, of course they're going to leave if, if, if church is like becoming a burden to them, you know, when they're already tired, you know, after hearing people talk at them all day, and then they go to church, and, and there's more talking, and there's more uh, expectations. And um, uh, sometimes you know, spiritually, including myself and as a parent, we, you know, we tell them, you know, you need to have more faith. You need to give more. You need to do more. You need to volunteer more. You need to say more. You need to be more. And instead of focusing on where we lack, how about we focus on hope? Paul talks about the greatest things being faith, hope, and love. And I think the church is really good about talking about faith. They're great about talking about faith. The church is really good about talking about love. You hear sermons on love all the time. But what about hope? Hope is a really important one in that, in that trinity of, of words there. You know, hope is an important word. Um, so what should we be saying more to our kids, to the people in our churches, to our friends, after a brutal day at school or maybe a miserable day at work that they've had? Maybe they've, uh, that girl uh, turned them down, that girl that they really liked, and they're heartbroken, and they're feeling like nothing. How about when we're raising kids, and we're worried sick about our kids, and we're worried sick about our kids' future? What should parents be hearing? What should the people that we minister to be hearing? They should be hearing this. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. You really are. You know, you're going to be fine. You know, God isn't going to leave you alone in this. You know, there's hope. And when the world tells them, you know, they're ugly, they're dumb, they're fat, you lack talent. We need to tell them you're beautiful, you're talented, you're gifted, you're intelligent, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. You know? You're a work of art. And we need to tell them you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. And you can do this. You know, there is hope. You can do this. You're going to be okay. And uh, when they're questioning and they're doubting, you know, uh, we need to tell them, you know what, you don't have to figure this all out 100%. You know, literally, who does have this all figured out? I don't, and I'm your dad. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have this thing figured out, but there's hope. Because guess what? You don't need a lot of faith. I know you don't hear that in church a lot. You don't really need a lot of faith. Have you read the Bible? The Bible says if you have a tiny little mustard seed of faith, you can move a mountain. You don't even need to move a mountain. 
So seriously, mixed in with all your doubts and all your confusion about things right now that's going on in the world, realize that God loves you. You're okay in the faith zone because you're here right now, right? You showed up. You showed up, you know? And so you don't need a lot of faith, you know? So that's one less burden I'm lifting right now. Just take that off the plate, okay? You just need a little bit, okay? And God's still going to work miracles in your life, and he's going to do great things because you probably don't need to, to, to move a mountain, I don't think. It may seem like a mountain, but it's probably less than that. And those are the kind of things that we can do to cultivate hope, and hope cultivates faith. And see, that's what happened on the wall. I didn't hear a lot of lectures on the wall when I was talking to God, when I was overlooking the city as a teenager. You know what? Um, I had hope. Um, I had hope. And uh, one of the biggest hopes I had as a shy kid was to have my own family because, you know, my family wouldn't eat dinners together or everything, and my family um, was a godly family, but... um, there was kind of a disconnect in certain ways, and I was kind of alone most of the time, I felt like. And uh, one of the things I dreamed of was having a family, having dinners together. And uh, I remember one time on that wall, it was actually, those, those visits with God lasted um, for years into university, and I was at university, and I wanted um, a family more than anything, and a wife more than anything, but that seemed impossible because I was so shy. I was incredibly shy. I couldn't even talk to girls at that point. And I told... I would talk to God about that, and God would give me hope. It's like, no, you're going to be great. You know, everything's going to be fine. And so one day, I came to the conclusion. I said, you know what, God? These, are, these talks with God were getting, they were so cool, and they were building me up so much. I told God, you know what? This dream I have of having a family, um, it's totally cool, God, if I don't get married. If you don't want me to get married, I'm okay with it. Like, really. And I really was. I was really okay with it, and I, I wrote things in my journal, and I wrote that in my journal. It's okay, God. And I walked away from that, and two days later, um, a young woman from Sweden walked into my youth group at church. And, uh, and that was literally about two days when I gave up on that dream. God brought in the girl of my dreams, which I've been married now 27 years. And we've been married together. And that was something that God did. See, God gave me hope that that would happen. And hope cultivates a faith that stays. And now you couldn't pry me away from God like at all because of all the things that he's done. So we need to cultivate hope. And uh, let's see, I'm going to skip a little bit because we're running out of time here. Another thing that we need to do is we need to not just talk, but we need to give hope and help. We need to give help. When I was a kid, I loved music. And when I was about 14, I went to this big rock festival at my house. It's now, uh, it's now in the area where there's a big festival called Coachella. It's this big music festival. Back then, it was called the Us Festival. And I went to the Us Festival to see a bunch of bands. We, I, we didn't drive, and we didn't have cell phones back then. Was, that's how old I am. And a kid's parent took us. His mom took us. And we went to this festival, and there was a bunch of bands there, David Bowie, and there was all these people playing. And it, there was about 150,000 people there. And I was at this festival, and I was a Christian. I had my mini New Testament in my pocket, and those were, my, those were the times when I was talking to God on the wall, and I especially wanted to see you too. And so, um, so I went to that festival, and I was there all day. And uh, what happened was uh, the kid that we were with ran up to the front of the crowd, and we lost him, and he was gone, the kid whose mom had driven us. And uh, me and another friend didn't know how to get home, and we got, it was about almost midnight, and I remember hearing David Bowie playing Let's Dance while we were walking in this field, trying to find like where to meet the mom and literally had no clue where to go. And uh, it was really scary because it was out in the desert, kind of, and I was terrified. Didn't have a phone. The police didn't help us. There's these police guarding the entrance of the festival on horses, and I remember calling up to them, and, and they couldn't help. They were just like, move out of the way, kid. And so um, I found some Christians, and they were young Christians like my age, talking about the evils of rock and roll music, and they were in the front telling people not to go to this festival. And um, so they were like 
my family. I can talk to them. They're going to help me out, right? So I went up to them, and, uh, and I, I told them, you know, I'm lost. And it's like, we well, know you're lost, brother, but you come to Jesus. And he was like, and I was, I was no, I'm lost. I don't know how to get home. And, uh, and uh, I had to, they kept on talking to me about Jesus, and I, I pulled out my Bible, actually. It's like, look, I'm a Christian. I have my Bible. It's like, oh, that's great, brother. And, um, but you know what they didn't do? They didn't help me. They were talking about Jesus and talking about Jesus. They didn't help me at all. And I ended up um, walking away and going to get help somewhere else because um, they weren't there to help me. They were there maybe because they wanted to please their youth pastors, and they totally had good hearts. They really did. They were Christians. They were just trying to follow God in the best way they could. I have no problem with that. You know, maybe they were trying to please God. Maybe they had like a spiritual obsessive compulsive disorder that they felt like they had to do spiritual things you know to to get favor with god or something but they weren't helping and uh the bottom line is guys in in everything i'm talking about here the bottom line is um that we need to help and uh help cultivates a, a faith that stays and we need to love um in all our interactions and we we, we want to be you know learn that art of hanging out and we want to cry with people when they're hurting and if we just hope and we just talk and we don't help, um, then we're going to have trouble. There was um, last story before I move on is, uh, you know, I don't think revival is going to come. And I talked about this yesterday. It's going to come from the famous pastor with a church of 20,000 people, although that's great. You know, it's great that churches grow that big. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's going to come from there. I think it's going to come from the outsider. I think it's going to come from the introvert in the back row. I think it's going to become maybe from the immigrant that's coming to our country. I think it's going to come from the artist and, uh, who has brilliant ideas but is scared to share them. Or maybe uh, the person that's you know, uh, kind of awkward but, but uh, is a reluctant revolutionary. Because in the Bible... God always uses the outside voice. He always does. He used Mary, who was a terrified teenager, to give birth to Jesus and raise him in his childhood years. And he uh, gave Moses, who stuttered. He was, a, he was an immigrant himself in, in Egypt. Um, he told Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. You know, you have countless people over and over in the Bible, and they're all outsiders. And everybody I was talking to this year in research for my book, they were outsiders. Um, they all had uh, Remington Scott, who worked on Lord of the Rings, was a total introvert at school, and he would just play in his room all the time, creating movie scenes with his action figures. And uh, there's all these outside voices, you know, over and over and over, outside voices. This weekend, tomorrow, um, I'm going to go out to coffee with, with an actor named David Birch who's in Matilda the Musical in London. And uh, he's a big dreamer, you know, and even dreamers are different. They're all outsiders. But it's this last thing I want to tell you is, you know what, we need to learn how to love, not pity. Pity is not love. And there's a story in the Bible, I want to close with this, and it's about an outside voice. It's about a guy named Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was jo- uh, Jonathan's son, Jonathan being David's friend. And when Mephibosheth was a little kid, he was probably about five years old, uh, they got invaded, Israel got invaded, and Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan went off to war. And they were both killed on the same day. So on the same day, Mephibosheth lost his dad, and he lost his grandfather. And he didn't just lose that, he lost everything. He lost the palace, he lost everything, because his nanny picked him up in her arms, and she was fleeing from the attackers. It must have been terrifying. And she fled, and when she fled to another land, she dropped him. In the, in the panic of leaving. And Mephibosheth became disabled. He couldn't walk anymore. For the rest of his life, he was uh, disabled in his legs. He was a uh, paraplegic. 
And uh, they took him to a distant land to live with some far-off relative that Mephibosheth didn't even know. And for all his days, he had to grow up with this stranger in a strange land without his parents, all alone. And he was an outside voice. Well, one day, decades later, um, King David, wanting to honor his friend Jonathan, who was his best friend, said, you know what, is there anyone left out of Jonathan's family? Is there anyone we can bless? You know, because I want to bless him. I want to bless the memory of my friend Jonathan. And some guy said, there's this guy, Mephibosheth, he lives like way out there, and he's, he's uh, Jonathan's son. And so, um, so David sent for him. And uh, Mephibosheth was terrified being sent to the palace because back then a king was basically a dictator. They could kill you if they wanted to on a whim. And so he was brought before the king, which normal people didn't do, especially people like Mephibosheth. And uh, they carried him before the king. And he said, um, Mephibosheth said, what, would you, what do you want with a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth at that point had such a low self-esteem, he felt like a dead dog. And David said, no, today... Um, you're going to eat at the king's table for the rest of your life. You're going to eat with my sons and daughters, and you're going to come into the palace. And from that day on, he was carried to the king's table every day, and he ate with royalty again. Now, a lot of people use that as a story to show God's pity. Like, God pities us. He cares so much for us. But you know what? There's another side of the story. God doesn't pity us. He loves us, and God values us. And I think he brought Mephibosheth to the table because Mephibosheth was an outside voice, and he had a different perspective. And he had, a, he had a different view on life. He had seen pain that no one else had seen. He had seen loneliness that the princes and the princesses of the castle had not seen ever at the, the palace, had not seen ever. Mephibosheth was there not because God pitied him, but because he was necessary. And I know um, if we want to cultivate a faith that stays, we need to welcome the outside voice, not pity the outside voice. Pity is not going to do anything. You know, if we pity the outsider in our churches, if we pity the outsiders, you know, in our own homes, you know, if we pity that our child is shy or introverted, no, we need to value them and realize, no, God made you exactly the way you are for a reason, you know. Remington Scott, I talk a lot about him because, you know, we've had some really good discussions in the last year, and he used to play with those action figures. He said he couldn't play sports. People would just pass the ball around him. He had a hard time in school, but guess what? God wanted him on the floor of his bedroom playing with action figures because, God wanted to use him to impact the movie industry, which he has. His technology has affected video games and, and movies like uh, Avatar and Spider-Man. And God had him on his bedroom floor playing alone for a reason. So embrace your uniqueness. You know, embrace the uniqueness in your kids and the people in your church. Hang out with people. Learn to love them. Learn to give them hope. You know, help them in any way you can. And that's what will cultivate a faith that stays. Right? Okay, thank you so much for listening, guys. I appreciate it. So. Okay.